Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, and suicidal ideation. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. At 5 p.m. on December 22, 1920, 62-year-old Edouard Jacotet and his five guests clutched their stomachs, each in the throes of a painful and mysterious illness. A few hours prior, they'd sat around Edouard's dinner table eating soup. The weather outside was warm. December still meant sunny in 75 in southern Africa. The conversation was cordial. Everything seemed perfectly normal. Until, one by one, they were struck with terrible abdominal cramps. Their symptoms only grew more extreme. Eventually, all six people were doubled over in pain. A few ran outside to vomit. Madeline, one of Edouard's daughters, felt ill, but she was strong enough to call on the local physician, Dr. Augsburger. Augsburger arrived swiftly. He checked over the house guests, all of whom were in various states of disrepair. They lay pale, sweating, and moaning in agony. Out of everyone, Edouard Jacquetet was clearly the worst off. Dr. Augsburger entered Edouard's room to find him languishing in bed. Augsburger asked Edouard what had caused everyone in his home to become ill so quickly. Edouard reached out with a clammy hand. Clutching Dr. Augsburger's arm, he croaked. Someone's poisoned us! This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our only episode on the 1920 murder of a Swiss missionary, Edouard Jacotet. His death appeared to be a closed-door mystery. Six people sat down for lunch and all six were poisoned. It's possible that one of Edward's guests knowingly ingested a lethal meal. Or perhaps someone was lurking behind the scenes. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. In 1884, a group of representatives from various European countries met in Berlin to discuss the future of an entire continent. A map of Africa lay before them. English, French, German, Portuguese, and Belgian diplomats vied for sections of the foreign land. Without the consent of a single African nation, they divided the continent among themselves. Great Britain laid an illegitimate claim to an area known as Basutoland. Now, modern-day Lesotho, the territory was an arid, mountainous expanse in southern Africa. Although locals led a number of revolts against British rule, the crown ultimately secured control of the region. While Africans fought for autonomy, colonizers congratulated themselves for supposedly helping people on the continent— Religious missionary expeditions were growing in popularity, so Europeans often claimed their main goal was to offer Africans a chance at salvation. In reality, European governments were mostly trying to expand their empires and get their hands on other nations' resources. Nations rarely, if ever, had pure motivations, but many individuals like Christian missionaries did have, in their mind, positive intentions— one such man was Edouard Jacquetet. Edouard was a member of the Paris Evangelical Missionary Society, or PEMS. He was Swiss by birth, but he'd spent time in both Germany and France. He spoke multiple languages, was a staunch believer in Protestant Christianity, and felt that his purpose in life was to serve others. Put another way, he was the perfect candidate for missionary life. So in 1884, 26-year-old Edouard convinced his wife, Louise, to accompany him on a religious expedition to Africa. Through PEMS, he received his first post in Basutoland. So, this is it. Our new home. Uh-huh. You don't like it? It's not Paris. No, it's better. See, darling, Paris is so busy. It's all... Hustle and bustle. Basuto land is quiet. It's calm. We could use a bit of that, don't you think? <sighs> you better remember, I'm only doing this for you, Edouard. The life of a missionary required a lot of sacrifices. The Jacotes had to move thousands of miles away from everything and everyone they'd ever known. They had to accept that Basuto land was still a developing area and it didn't have many of the conveniences they'd enjoyed in Europe. Perhaps most difficult, Louise had to spend the majority of her time alone while her husband did missionary work. Although these lifestyle changes were hard on Louise, Edouard took them in stride. No matter the struggle, he believed he was duty-bound to spread the word of his God. Edouard also held some fairly unconventional views compared to other missionaries, 
He didn't think Europeans should force Africans to worship the Christian God. Instead, he wanted his fellow missionaries to blend Christian beliefs with indigenous African traditions. This was because Edouard understood that religions are culture-specific. In his mind, any version of Christianity that took hold in Basuto land would need to be unique to the local people. This view of religion wasn't the only thing that made Edouard different. He was also a gifted linguist. He didn't just aim to spread Christianity in Basutoland, but to create a standardized written grammar for the local language, Sesuto. In addition to everything else, Edouard also worked at the mission's printing press, or book depot. He stayed busy, but in his few free moments, he forged relationships with locals and took short trips back to Europe. Over the next two decades, he and Luis also had six children— three daughters, and three sons. Soon enough, they were the picture of a happy missionary family. And it only seemed to be going up from there. In 1906, 22 years after arriving in Basutoland, 48-year-old Edouard Jacotet published A Practical Method to Learn Sesuto. It was the first time the grammatical rules of Sesuto were written down, and it became the leading text for non-native speakers. It was also Edouard's magnum opus. After the book's publication, Edouard gained a reputation as both an impressive scholar and a beloved missionary. The following year, perhaps in response to the success of his book, 49-year-old Edouard received something of a promotion. <laughs> Louise! Honey! You aren't going to believe this! Why are you yelling? It's a letter from the theological school. They want to put me in charge, head teacher. Are you serious? Edouard, that's wonderful. <sighs> I want to accept, but we'll need to move to Marija. I can't make you uproot your life again. And the children, it wouldn't be fair to them. We'll do whatever we have to. I'm so proud of you. In 1907, Edouard, his wife, and his six kids relocated to Morija, a town just south of Basutoland's capital. He took his post at the theological school very seriously. Over the next decade, he taught both children and other missionaries. Edouard's life was going as he'd always planned. But it wasn't all sunshine. There were unexpected pressures involved in being such a well-known religious official. First, just like in Europe, tensions between Protestants and Catholics existed in Africa. Contempt between the different missions bubbled beneath a thin veneer of civility. Edouard was a Protestant missionary, and he had a few run-ins with the Catholic leadership. Second, even though he meant well, Edouard was still a European colonist. While some Africans accepted him and even converted to Christianity— not everyone was happy to have Edouard around. Lastly, Edouard held a certain level of status in the community. At the end of the day, he was considered by many to be a moral guide and leader. He had a reputation to uphold. Likely because of these various pressures, Edouard was a strict father. He kept a close eye on his children, which might be part of the reason why all three of his sons... Henri, Gustave, and Claude moved away from Basuto land by 1918. 
but his daughters stayed close to home. 17-year-old Marguerite was the youngest, 25-year-old Madeline in the middle, and 32-year-old Marcel was the oldest. Even though they were grown up, they still lived at home, and they were expected to abide by their father's religious beliefs. The youngest siblings, Marguerite and Madeline, found Edouard's watchful eye stifling. <sighs> Marguerite, Madeline, what's wrong with you two this time? Father says I can't go out with my friends without a chaperone. He thinks there will be boys there. <laughs> and my head has been killing me for weeks. But Father won't send me back to Europe. There's no doctor here that can properly treat me, Marcel. <sighs> it must be something with my nerves. I'm telling you, it's excruciating. Oh, suck it up, Madeline. At least you've got a social life. I'm in far too much pain to be social. Clearly. There will be other opportunities to see your friends, Marguerite. None like this. So there will be boys there then? Of course, you idiot. That's exactly why I want to go. Will someone please put me out of my misery? There's a bottle of arsenic in the dining room cupboard. I'll split it with you. As frustrated as they might have been, the Jacoté sisters enjoyed a relatively happy life in Basuto land. Their father was strict, but he was also loving. Their mother doted on them. When 33-year-old Marcel became ill with what Edouard believed to be typhoid fever in March of 1919, Louise spent months nursing her back to health. However, soon after her daughter recovered, Louise grew increasingly weak. When Edouard left on a business trip to Johannesburg, South Africa, in late October, he made sure his wife wouldn't be left alone. Samuel, I can't thank you enough. Don't speak of it. Let me put dear Louise's bag away. You'll only be gone a week, yes? That's right. Just keep her company and keep an eye on her, all right? She has a tendency to push herself too hard. Edouard left his wife in the care of Reverend Samuel Duby, a fellow missionary and trusted friend. Duby was also married, so there was nothing improper about her lodging with him. Edouard trusted she'd be in good hands. But when he returned a week later, he found his wife in a much worse condition. A local doctor told Edouard that she had a serious heart condition, the exact nature of which is unclear. Less than two weeks later, Louise was dead. The news hit the Jacotés hard. Louise had been the glue that held them together. Without her, their family was about to fall apart. Coming up, the Jacotés' reputations are strained, and someone targets Edouard. Pinocchio Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid. They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. 
For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. In November of 1919, 61-year-old Edouard Jacoté's wife, Louise, died of a heart condition. For over 30 years, the European couple had lived in Basuto land, a British colony in southern Africa. Edouard was a well-known Protestant missionary, and now he was left to care for his three daughters all on his own. Following Louise's death, things in the Jacoté house quickly took a turn for the worse. Perhaps because their mother was no longer around to care for them, the Jacoté daughters got in even more trouble. In September of 1920, 18-year-old Marguerite was expelled from the theological school. Hey, Madeline! I heard Marguerite got kicked out of school. Leave me alone. What'd she do? Get caught with a boy? No. What was it then? Lying? A missing prayer? Theft. Theft? Yes. Now, would you kindly get out of my way? Wait! What did she steal? Ugh! Marguerite's expulsion was a huge embarrassment for Edouard. They were supposed to be a respectable family, and yet his daughter wasn't even welcome at school. Two months later, in November of 1920, 26-year-old Madeline's issues took center stage. Her nerve affliction was still bothering her, and apparently her symptoms were getting unbearable. Father, you have no idea how much it hurts. I can't handle it anymore. I'd sooner do away with myself than keep living like this. Madeline's apparent suicidal ideation became a point of worry for her father and her sisters. Edouard confided in his oldest daughter. I don't know how to help her. I've got to make sure she can't hurt herself. Oh, Marcel, you and Marguerite have to get rid of that arsenic in the cupboard. What if you need it? Well, don't throw it out, but find somewhere to store it. Somewhere Madeline can't get to it. I fear if she stumbled on it during one of her fits... She might do something rash. Although it might seem strange to keep arsenic in the house, it was a fairly common item in the 19th and 20th centuries. The chemical could be used as an insecticide, a rat poison, and was a common ingredient in many medications. 
But at her father's request, 34-year-old Marcel removed the arsenic from the home. Edouard could rest easier knowing his ailing daughter wouldn't have access to the poison. Although things were a bit better with Madeleine, the tension between Marguerite and her father remained palpable. Since she'd been expelled, Edouard allowed her even fewer freedoms, and this caused them to fight bitterly. On December 21, 1920, their yelling practically shook the house. Oh, Father, please! Samuel Doobie is a nice man. You won't even let me go on a simple picnic with him? You're staying home. My word is final. You're being ridiculous! Marguerite, do not take that tone with me. I will not argue with you any longer. Go to your room. You can't just send me to my room. I'm not a child. You've certainly been acting like one. When you die, I hope the gates of heaven slam shut in your face. There was no peace inside the Chakote house. But still, the family patriarch had an image to uphold. On December 22nd, the day after his awful fight with Marguerite, he hosted guests at his home. A couple called Mr. and Mrs. Reed came over at 10.30 a.m. for tea. Another couple, the Pyards, also arrived at some point that morning. Neither planned to stay very long, but a storm blew through Morija, and the roads flooded so badly that the Reeds and the Pyards were all but stranded. Ever the gracious host, Edouard insisted that his friends stay for lunch. They obliged. Edouard presumably informed his cook an indigenous African woman named Jarita, to prepare food for eight instead of their usual four. But soon enough, Madeline told her father that her sisters wouldn't be joining them for lunch. Apparently, Marcel had informed Madeline that she and Marguerite would be dining at Samuel Doobie's house that afternoon. With so many guests around, Edouard couldn't do anything but swallow his annoyance. Jarita set the table for six, and Edouard... Madeline, the Reeds, and the Pyards took their seats. Jarita placed a pot of homemade soup on the table. Madeline ladled the food into everyone's bowls. Edouard found the meal so delicious that he had a second helping. The group ate, made polite conversation, and enjoyed themselves. Until the symptoms hit. Is anyone else feeling a bit... Sick to their stomach? Actually, yes... I think I'm going to step out for some fresh air. Father, are you all right? You look nauseous. My stomach. Mine too. There must have been something off in the soup. Call the doctor, Madeline. Quickly! Madeline sent a message to Dr. Augsburger. She also informed her sisters that their guests and their father had taken ill. Marcel, Marguerite, and Samuel Duby all rushed to the Jacoté home. The physician arrived at about 2 p.m. Dr. Augsburger administered injections of camphorated oil, an anti-inflammatory and pain-relieving medication. He kept an eye on everyone's vital signs. Madeline recovered quickly. The reeds and pyards were back on their feet by 7 p.m. But Edouard, who'd eaten two full bowls of the soup, wasn't improving. With his daughters at his bedside, he grew increasingly sick. When Augsburger asked what had caused him and his guests to fall ill, 
Edouard told the doctor they'd been poisoned. Somehow, Edouard knew the cause of his own death. Even so, he could do nothing to stop it. He fell in and out of consciousness. Dr. Augsburger injected him with more camphorated oil. It was the only medication the physician could offer, and it did little to help the missionary. At 3.10 a.m., Edouard Jacoté died. The next morning, Christmas Eve, news of Edouard's sudden death spread through Basutoland. People were heartbroken to hear of the missionary's passing and shocked to learn that he and his guests had presumably been poisoned. Early in the day, Dr. Hamilton William Dyke, a medical examiner from Basutoland's capital, came to the Jacotes' home to conduct an autopsy. Hoping to figure out exactly what chemical poisoned the late missionary, Dr. Dyke took samples of Edouard's stomach contents. He sent these to a government official for analysis. At the same time, Basutoland police inspector Pierre Bunbury questioned who he believed to be the most obvious suspect, the cook, Chirita. How long did you say you've worked for Mr. Jacote? About ten years, sir. That's a long time. He must have trusted you. So what happened to him? I couldn't tell you. I just made the soup. There was nothing strange about it. It was oats, beef extract, salt, and beans. Very simple. But everyone who ate it took ill. Not me. You ate the soup too? Not a full bowl, but there was a couple tablespoons left in the pot once everyone else had their fill. I only had a bit, and I felt completely fine. It seemed unlikely that Jarita would eat the soup if she knew it had been poisoned, but that left investigators in a mysterious situation. Everyone in the house that afternoon had tasted the meal. Either nobody knew the food had been tampered with, or someone purposely ingested a lethal lunch. So investigators had a new idea. Perhaps the soup itself hadn't been poisoned. Maybe one of its ingredients had. For instance, if someone tampered with the oats prior to the meal being cooked, Jarita might not have known that they were dangerous. With this in mind, investigators collected samples of the ingredients and sent them to be analyzed. Dr. Dyke also asked Marcel and Samuel Duby if there had been any poisons in the house anything that might have accidentally contaminated something else. Marcel immediately mentioned the arsenic that was once kept in the kitchen cupboard. She said that she and Marguerite had removed it from the house sometime before. She didn't know of anything else that could have gotten into the food. At that, the investigators decided to let the case rest. They had to wait for Edouard's stomach contents and the soup ingredients to be analyzed before they could move forward. But Dr. Augsburger, the physician who attended to Edouard, wasn't satisfied. He met up with Samuel Duby later that morning and detailed his theories about what had happened to Edouard. Reverend Duby, I'd like to uh, run a few things by you. Of course, Doctor. I know that Edouard had some issues with the Catholic missionaries in the past. Land disputes, schooling, that kind of thing. Do you think perhaps... The Catholic chief might have... It's certainly possible. There's been trouble at the mission's printing works as well. Remember all those workers went on strike? People would kill over less. I'd prefer not to speculate. 
Let the police do their work, you know? But you were quite close to the Jacotes. You could say that. Didn't you ever notice anything odd about them? I don't want to be insensitive, but I've seen Madeline in the city quite hysterical before. It makes me think there must be something abnormal going on, something they're hiding. Don't you agree? I believe Madeline has some sort of affliction. Beyond that, I really couldn't say. Theories about Edouard's death abounded, but none quite stuck. Because of his status in the community, he could have been targeted by almost anyone. Around two weeks passed with no new information. Then, on January 7, 1921, the Basutoland police received the results of Edouard's stomach content analysis. The missionary had indeed been poisoned by arsenic. Investigator Bunbury questioned the Jacote family again. No new clues surfaced, so the detective went with his gut. On January 24, 1921, over a month after Edouard died, his cook, Jarita, was arrested on suspicion of murder. Even though they had a suspect behind bars, the Basutoland police didn't have a very strong case. They conducted searches of Edouard's home and his printing press, hoping to find more clues. And they discovered something that turned their investigation upside down. Edouard Jacoté had worked alongside his friend and colleague Samuel Duby at the printing works. And inside a drawer in Duby's desk, the police uncovered a bottle of arsenic. It might have been normal to keep the chemical in a home pantry or medicine cabinet, but keeping it at work seemed very strange. In fact, it seemed an awful lot like Duby was trying to hide the arsenic, and there was only one reason he would do that. Perhaps Duby had targeted his own friend. Up next, officers reveal Samuel Duby's terrible secret. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Now back to the story. In the winter of 1921, police in Basutoland, Southern Africa, investigated the death of 62-year-old Edouard Jacoté. He died of arsenic poisoning, and detectives discovered a bottle of the chemical in his colleague Samuel Duby's desk drawer. Duby was a Protestant reverend, a fellow missionary, and a family friend. But upon the discovery of a deadly poison in his desk drawer... 
he became a murder suspect. Officers immediately put two and two together. Marcel Jacquetet said she and her sister, Marguerite, had removed the arsenic from the kitchen cupboard. Authorities must have believed that it was the same bottle of poison found in Samuel Duby's desk. Because on February 3, 1921, Marcel, Marguerite, and Duby were all arrested. At that point, Gerita was presumably released from jail... News that Edouard's own daughters and close friend might have killed him spread like wildfire. When the three suspects arrived for a preliminary hearing on February 10th, practically everyone in Basuto land was watching. The proceedings began with a retelling of the crime. On the afternoon of December 22nd, Mr. Jacquetet and his guests sat down for a cordial lunch. Before they knew it, they all became the victims of poisoning. It's a bizarre case, to be sure. What motive would a person have to poison six people? Here, I present the first clue to answering such a question. Dr. William Dyke took samples of the deceased's stomach contents, the results of which will be explained by our government analyst. Upon examination, Mr. Jacquetet's stomach was found to contain arsenic. This chemical was undoubtedly the cause of his death. But again, the question is why? Why would someone poison Edouard Jacquetet? Perhaps we have our answer. Arsenic, the same chemical that killed Mr. Jacquetet, was found in Samuel Duby's desk drawer. Now, I beg you, what purpose would a deadly substance have at a printing press? Um, none. None indeed. I assert that the arsenic in Mr. Doobie's desk had a far more sinister purpose. I invite our next witness to the stand. A gray-haired woman sat before the court. Her name was Edith King, and she was the headmistress of Marguerite's school. She was the woman who expelled Marguerite the previous September, and she needed to set the record straight. In September of last year, we had some issues at the school. Some money had been stolen from a teacher. In the hopes of finding it, we searched each girl's room. In Marguerite's, she was such a good student, really, which is what made it so shocking. She had a number of letters hidden in her room, all written in French. Now, I speak a fair amount of French, and I can tell you that the contents of these letters were not appropriate for any girl to receive. It became clear that Marguerite had a... lover. The letters weren't signed with a proper name, but they were postmarked from Morija, and I recognized the handwriting. They were from Mr. Samuel Duby. I immediately summoned Marcel, the oldest Jacquetet sister, to the school. I was quite shaken, I admit, and I showed Marcel the contents of the letters. She reacted so calmly that I could only assume she already knew what I was telling her. Not only was I faced with the fact that Marguerite was having improper relations with a married reverend, but at that point, I was certain that her older sister was complicit in the affair. The revelations sent a shockwave through the courtroom. 
Edith further explained that the teenage Marguerite eventually broke down in tears and confessed to having a romantic relationship with 46-year-old Samuel Doobie. As awful as it was, Edith felt it was her duty to pass the information along to Marguerite's father. Edouard was faced with the knowledge that his own daughter was sleeping with his colleague, a man 28 years older than her. To make matters worse, Edith told Edouard that she believed Marcel was just as guilty as Marguerite. She'd kept the affair a secret and perhaps even helped orchestrate it. The shame was too much for Edouard to bear. He hushed the whole thing up and instructed Madeline, then his only trusted daughter, to lie about why Marguerite was expelled. He'd rather have people think his child was a thief than an adulterer. Later on, Edith received a letter from Edouard. He told me to rest assured that the matter had been properly dealt with. He promised that Doobie was being removed from the mission and that his wife had been made aware of his indiscretions. With that, many locals thought they knew the truth behind Edouard Jacoté's murder. The motive seemed all too clear. Samuel Doobie's life was about to fall apart. Like Edouard, he'd spent decades as a missionary in Basutoland. He had a good reputation and what seemed like a solid marriage. But Edouard fired him from the mission and pushed him to confess his infidelity to his wife. Doobie almost certainly resented Edouard, perhaps enough to kill him. However, there was still one problem. Nothing was said about the soup's ingredients, which had been tested for arsenic. In all likelihood, this meant they didn't contain the poison. Therefore, whoever put the chemical into the food almost certainly did it while it was cooking, or right before the meal was served. Doobie had a weapon, and he had a cause. But he hadn't been at the Jacotet's home until after the poisoning occurred. Someone else must have put the arsenic in the soup. It's unclear when exactly people moved in and out of the Jacoté house on the day of the murder. Sharita claimed that neither Marguerite nor Marcel were in the kitchen on the morning of December 22, 1920. However, Madeline said that Marguerite had been there. She told investigators that she ran into Marguerite leaving the dining room. She also saw Marcel later in the afternoon, when the oldest sister told her father that she and Marguerite would be having lunch with Doobie. According to Madeline, Marguerite left the kitchen before the soup was ever made. Though she was obviously furious with her father, maybe enough to kill him, she couldn't have distributed the poison. Marcel, however, had been in the kitchen after Jarita made the soup. That meant Marcel was the only suspect who had the chance to tamper with the meal. If this explanation is to be believed, the crime must have been a conspiracy orchestrated by at least three people. Marguerite and Doobie both had a clear motive. Marcel had the ability, and all three had access to a deadly poison. But there are still serious holes in this theory. Clearly, Marguerite and Doobie's emotions were running high, and either could have been driven to kill. However, Marcel's involvement makes much less sense. Her love life and reputation weren't on the line, so it's hard to believe she'd be willing to commit murder. 
But perhaps the poisoner never meant to kill Edouard. Marguerite and Marcel might have only wanted their father and his guests to suffer. They could have worked out that one serving of soup would result in illness, but their father had two bowls, which turned out to be lethal. Either way, there was no other obvious suspects. To many, it seemed like an open and shut case. Marguerite, Marcel, and Duby were the only people with the means, motive, and opportunity. Police brought the suspects back to jail, where they waited three agonizing weeks to hear whether or not they'd face a criminal trial. Finally, on March 3rd, 1921, they were informed of their fate. Marguerite Jacoté, Marcel Jacoté, and Samuel Duby. As you no doubt know, this case is of the most unpleasant nature. At this time, there is insufficient evidence to commit any one of you for criminal trial. Should any further information come to light, you will be subjected to rearrest on the same charge. Until then, you are all free to go. This decision baffled Marie Ja locals. According to Tim Cousins, an author and historian who wrote about the case, many people who knew the Jacotes felt certain that Marguerite, Marcel, and Duby were guilty. Nevertheless, the presiding judge, resident commissioner Garraway, set them free. They were never fully cleared of the crime, but they were never charged either. In his book, Murder at Marija, Cousin speculated about why Garraway might have chosen to let his only real suspects off the hook. He noted that Garraway, quote, must have known that many poisoning cases had been successfully prosecuted on circumstantial evidence alone. In other words, if Garraway wanted to convict the trio, he almost certainly could have. But the judge faced a serious ethical dilemma. In Basutoland, people convicted of murder were hanged. Seeking justice for Edouard meant potentially sending three others to the gallows. And it's possible that Garraway didn't want any blood on his hands. There were political issues involved in prosecuting the suspects, too. Edouard, and by extension his daughters, represented the Protestant missionary efforts in Basutoland. The poisoning had already damaged the mission's reputation. Convicting the late reverend's children, along with one of his colleagues, would only bring more shame. It's also worth noting that Edouard's murder took place against a colonial backdrop. It's reasonable to assume that Garraway, who was white, held a certain level of loyalty to other Europeans living in Africa. If nothing else, an instinct to protect his fellow colonists might have swayed his decision. In any case, Garraway backed down. He let the most likely culprits go, ensuring that Edouard Jacoté's murder would always be shrouded in mystery. Even in the face of this uncertainty, the people of Basutoland had to move forward. Upon his release from jail, Samuel Duby claimed total innocence. His wife apparently believed him. They soon moved away from Marija, but the stress of the crime, the hearing, and his ruined reputation proved too much for Duby to handle. In December of 1923, at only 49 years old, Samuel Duby died. According to Tim Cousins, the Reverend's heart simply stopped. Things weren't much better for the Jacotes. Records about the children are difficult to come by, 
but it seems that the family disintegrated after their father's death. Henri, one of Edouard's sons, always believed Marcel distributed the poison. At some point, he reportedly told his sister to never contact him or the rest of the family ever again. But even without Edouard or his children working in Basuto land, the missionary station still exists. Religious officials carry on Edouard's work over a century after his death. As Tim Cousins puts it, life goes on as if nothing happened. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. For more information on Edouard Jacoté, amongst the many sources we used, we found Murder at Marija, Faith, Mystery, and Tragedy on an African Mission by Tim Cousins, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Kylie Harrington and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Cameron Nicod, and Kimlin Tran. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy to a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from Parcast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of Parcast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself, as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time, and catch new episodes Mondays, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.